And it's a very interesting relationship between two sentient beings communicating simply through physical contact, actually. I'm not here for you to love me or I'm not here to entertain you. I'm actually here because we are going to take on the system and we are going to win. Hello, I'm Dave. I'm the guy that's putting all this stuff together. I need to get better. Please make me better. I want to get better. Better. Better acquainted with you. Today we're getting better acquainted with Sally. Hello, Sally. Hello, Dave. (laughs) Right, so the first question that I ask everybody is how do you know me? I know you through Spark London, the storytelling sessions up at the Hackney Attic on uh, Monday evenings. Yeah, that's right. Good. Uh, the second Monday of the month. That's good. We're, we're doing a plug. As yeah, always, absolutely. That's always good. And, and yeah. So yeah, and I've known you. I mean, you've, come, you've come to Spark for quite some time since it sort of started, I feel like, in Hackney. Somebody said to me it sounded like a fun idea. Then he couldn't actually come with me to it. So I thought, oh, I don't mind. I'm going on my own. And I sat and I listened, and it was the most enormous fun. And I thought, I will never, ever stand up and tell a story. I remember you saying that mm. to me. You were very, yeah. very like, definite that you wouldn't get up and tell a story. Absolutely. There was no way I was going on stage with a microphone. And that lasted for about the first three months. And then on one Monday, I was there. And I thought, actually, I have a story. And... It's amazing just getting up and talking to people about a part of your life. Yeah, I mean, it, it really is. And I should say, there's a very strange sound happening behind us. I don't know what that is, but we're in King's Place, which is near King's Cross, St Pancras Station. And it's kind of like an art gallery we're in. And I think that might be the sound of... They were moving benches, weren't they? And I reckon that's the sound of the wheels going under those benches. So there we go. It's peaceful now. And it's peaceful. And it is... A fabulous building. I've never been in it before. I can't think how I've missed it. And I'm loving the artwork. Right, I'm, I am too. Fun. Although it's, it's, it's kind of a, it's distracting if I look at it too Just much. Just a bit, yes. And what, there's also <laughs> there's, a, there's a naked man in one yes. of them, which, which is absolutely fine, but definitely, definitely distracting. <laughs> I'm um, trying to work out if he's standing up or lying down, which is quite because he's got a plant behind him, which makes me think he's standing think up. He's but standing he actually up. looks as though he's lying down. He does. The camera, if there was a camera, is underneath like looking up towards him so he looks like he's lying down even though I think he is standing up that's what it is but it has been worrying me and it's (laughs) (laughs) I don't know why it's been worrying me there's absolutely no reason why it should worry me I just felt I wanted to put him into a proper context right well that's good and you can see him a bit more than I can I think from where you're sitting so there we go a good a a second distraction I'm holding a microphone on on one side of you and on the other side there's a a picture of a naked Naked man. man Great way to interview somebody. <laughs> this is an awesome afternoon, really. <laughs> I've got a microphone with a furry hat on, which is like a character out of a children's entertainment, and I think ought to have a name. And then I have this naked man, right. who also probably ought to have a name. And the rest of the pictures are all really head and shoulders, yeah. and by comparison are not dull, but just not quite as distracting they're less realistic in the way that they look as well so he looks a little bit more real like more photo real he does look more photo real the others do just look like (laughs) head and shoulders right right and pictures yeah so we'll move on right 
So the second question I ask everybody is, what do you do now? I teach people IT skills, and particularly setting up spreadsheets and databases. And that's something that is such a conversation killer. This is why I go out and do other things, because I have to have other things to talk about. Fair enough, yeah. yeah. Yeah, It's funny, because like this happens a lot with people I talk to from Spark. I've sort of seen lots of bits of your life on stage, yeah. and you've also seen that with me, because yes. I do a story every time, and you're a regular, so you've seen yeah. a lot of those stories. Yes. I mean, you might know me better than some of my friends might know me, actually, thinking about it. So I sort of know some stuff around, about mm. you that somebody who sort of... Like, we, we, don't, we don't know each other that well socially. No. no. So I know more about you than I normally would do somebody that I was sort of meeting socially. But one of the things that you sort of like to talk about occasionally in your stories mm-hmm. is teaching, I guess. Yeah. And so what you're doing now is teaching, but it's a different kind of teaching than you've always done. Is that right? I, I started off school teaching, and I gave that up, oh, 25 years ago. And moved into adult areas. But I think teaching is potentially the best job in the world, or without question, the worst job in the world. There's no middle ground with that, and I think sometimes people just stay in teaching because it's a job, it's a paycheck, and that's not where you need to be, it's not good for anybody. But I, at the end of the day, I was... I was good at getting children through exams and teaching is about much more than that, despite what the government would like to say. Right, you'd be their ideal teacher because that's all they really seem to care about. Yeah. I mean, they seem like it's just just the current government, but that's been a consistent feature of governments for quite a while, I think. But it, 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 it it can be fun because you actually say to the children, it's us and them. So it's us against the system to get them their exams. So that puts them on your side. And actually, children like success. So if you say to them, I'm not here for you to love me or and I'm not here to entertain you I'm actually here because we are going to take on the system and we are going to win <laughs> that's okay but uh, the bottom line was I didn't really feel that was a strong enough line to keep me working with young people right they deserve better than that and what was just what, what sort of age and subjects and stuff like that secondary mathematics maths yeah that's the other conversation killer maths is awesome I it's don't think fabulous. it's a co- conversation killer. Oh. I'm not very good at it, but I, uh, I, I like it. I'm interested in it. Everybody, when you say that, so I'm not very good at maths. It's as if I'm going to ask them questions. <laughs> but everybody says they're not good at it, or they can't do it, or they didn't like it. And that's such a shame, because maths is the one where there's no question about the answer. If somebody says, what's two plus three? The answer's five. It's not like discussing Shakespeare's sonnets where it is so, so, you know, subjective and people think around it. And you can be wrong. You can get ten out of ten in maths. You get a coloured star. You get five coloured stars. You get a silver star. If you get five silver stars, you get a gold star. What's wrong with that? No, that sounds sounds fun. (laughs) But it's not the best way to become a maths teacher, just being good at it. And I think sometimes people go into teaching because they're good at something, not necessarily because they love it and want to share it and inspire young people with it. So was, was it maths that... Was that your story then? Did we, you, you really loved maths and then you ended up falling into teaching? No, I was just really good at it. <laughs> and, and I... Uh, the other thing you'll know about me from meeting me at Spark is that I had an interest in horses when I was a child, which I still have. And I have to say that I thought 
if I go into teaching, I'll still have long holidays and I can ride my horse in the holidays. Right, the, the, the holidays do it the for a holidays, lot of holidays, yeah. But in fact, the, the holidays didn't... It was one of the things I didn't like about teaching was this, you put a massive amount of effort in and then it all stops. And then you put hours and hours out and then it all stops. I wanted something that was a little bit more consistent right. with my time. Not working like not, solid, like yeah. hard, hard, never a break, but then not really long breaks where Absolutely. you can't, yeah, you can't, you've got nothing to do, you get bored. Again. And the other thing is the breaks are when the schools break up. So there are things I would like to do. I am going this year to Widdicombe Fair. Widdicombe Fair is the second Tuesday in September. If you are a teacher, you are always teaching on the second Tuesday in September. Right. So I could never go to Widdicombe Fair. So right. you've got long holidays, you just didn't get them when you wanted and, them. And also, so do the, so the kids, right? So yeah. everywhere you go is where the kids are. Yeah. I mean, because my, my partner works in a school, so, oh, right. so it's, it's a similar thing. Like, she don't, we don't want to go away on holiday during the time when all the kids are going on holiday because... You know, she wants a break yes. <laughs> from her work. Yes, yes, yeah. And, uh, although what I discovered, the moment I stopped teaching, I discovered when you go out anywhere, there are children now out and about because they're on school trips. So if you're not careful, you end up with somebody saying to you, can you please organise your children? <laughs> to do with me. And do you like maths then as well? I mean, I really do like it, but I like maths because I can do it and get it right. Right. There's no huge love. There are people who really love mathematics uh, because of what it does and where it takes them. I just like getting things right. I had, <laughs> I had very low self-esteem as a child, and that was the one area where I could think, doing quite well right it's demonstrable provable yeah yeah right absolutely although when I got to A levels I did pure maths applied maths but I also did English which was a strange combination really most people do pure maths applied maths and physics physics yeah but I gave up all my sciences when I was 13 14 I just stopped doing science because I thought science was finished with I thought science had been established it was in dusty old books you learnt it why would you do that I didn't realise that science is still going on, that people are still finding things out, researching things. I've recently met somebody who works at CERN with the Large Hadron Collider. Right. Fascinating. Oh yeah, science is very interesting. It's superb. How could I ever have thought it was boring? But I did. I just thought it was over. Well, I guess it must have been the teaching. Something like that. (laughs) Yeah. Something like that. Right. Which must have been just, which, yeah, I guess that's that's the thing, like, all teachers have have had teachers yeah. um, and it, you know that, I think that's that's always an interesting thing like so everyone has complicated relationships with the idea of teachers and all my family are teachers so I kind of I'm familiar oh, with the right, complicated okay, ways that. that people can feel about teaching why did you become a teacher was there a passion for that at least initially there was because all the time I was riding in my teens I got involved with teaching people how to ride so I'd done some teaching and so the fact that I'd done some teaching and people seemed to think I was quite good at it, and because of the holidays, why wouldn't you? And it's the holidays that have reminded me. The other thing about when you leave teaching is when, when you're in teaching, the holidays never come. When you leave teaching, it seems that the schools are breaking up every other week. The children are on holiday all the time. I think I was... I was I was good at getting children through exams, but I I didn't inspire children and I didn't have, I wasn't very good on the pastoral side. I wasn't interested in the pastoral side. 
I, I've never had my own children because I'm not interested in children and their care and upbringing. And I think teachers should be a little bit more interested in young people and just getting them a GC, well, what would have been an O-level in my day. Right, I mean, I know what you mean, although I'm not, I don't want to have kids and I used to think, and nor does my partner, and I, I used to think, you know, in some ways that's an asset. But then we both work with younger kids. I think when it's teenagers, it's possibly different. I don't know. There's, I think there's positives to being someone who's not like a, yeah, a parent, I guess. Yeah. I like to think we can give them a, a slightly different outlook, you know. Okay. But that's my, my view, I guess. But uh, teenage boys are phenomenal to work with in school. They are such fun. If, uh, they can be very naughty, but that's fun as well because they're thinking it through. But I, they are terrific and they will put in a lot of work and they will be very, very naughty, but it's never boring. <laughs> the great thing about teaching is it is never dull. It is always entertaining. Right. I mean, you did it for quite a few years. Yeah, 15 and a bit. Right. So, I mean, I think that that's, that's fine. The idea of having a job for life is a strange one. Like, it's good to change things up, right, I think. I mean, I guess, so you, you, you were a teacher for 15 years. What other things have you done? But then, you see, I went into the IT side. Right. And, and really, I have stayed there. And I think part of the problem is being self-employed. It's really difficult to resign. You can't <laughs> right, write right. this stroppy letter that says, I'm handing in my resignation because, because I'd be giving it to myself. But I like going out and working with people who want to acquire a skill so that they can be better at their job. I hope I'm making their lives easier. Right, that's I mean, good fun. And, you, and you're, still, fun. Yeah, you're still teaching, you're just yeah. teaching adults, and that's, yeah. and that's a different thing. But, yeah. And in a very short term, because I meet people at half past nine in the morning, I'm going to work with them until half past four in the afternoon. I may never see them again. Right. So I have to very quickly build up a relationship, establish where they are, and it's, that's challenging, that's fun. It's actually good fun trying to see how well you can relate to a complete stranger yeah. and teach them a new skill. Yeah. And people will say to me, must be very boring, you're doing the same thing all the time. I haven't done two training courses in 25 years that are the same because it's always based on who is in front of me. And I guess, so, I mean... 25 years means that it, you were a relatively early adopter, I guess, in terms of the internet and, the, like, computers and stuff like that. You were in at the beginning of all of that, like, training early on as well as, as, well as late, right? You will have heard one of my stories because, as you say, we do find out about people. And it's interesting, the stories that one feels comfortable telling. It's quite nice to have an audience sometimes to say, I've had this story in my past it would be nice to share. At the beginning of the 1970s, I wrote my first computer programmes and I did it on punched tape and there was a massive 24-hour turnaround to get the answer. And people sometimes will say to me, oh, how do you find computers at your age? <laughs> well, actually, I've been working with them since 1970 and they back off a little bit at this point because yeah I started way way back and was the attraction similar to the maths thing that there was definite answers definite right and wrong ways that you could work it out yeah and and because it is problem solving right it is saying I need to achieve this end result 
how can I get a machine that operates with ones and zeros and a predefined limited language? How can I adjust that to achieve the result I want? And the first step is, can I just get the right answer? And the second step is, but can I get it more elegantly? So it's fun. But I don't do very much of it these days. Horse riding seems like one of these things doesn't go together, like maths and computers and problem solving. That's not what horses are about. Horses, actually, it's the rapport again, I think. And if I'm... I actually went and rode a friend's horse this morning and he's a little bit of a cheeky horse and when I'm riding him I can almost I can read his mind I know what he's thinking I know when he's building up for a bit of trouble and I can just explain with the same kind of language that's completely non-verbal that actually we're not going down that road and it's a very interesting relationship between two sentient beings communicating simply through physical contact, actually. It's, now I'm sitting here thinking about it. That's really what it is. And you are, you are listening to this animal and you are hearing what this animal says. So if the animal says, I'm not sure what you want, then you back off and you find another way to explain what it is that you want. So you are explaining in a non-verbal situation to a perfectly competent, sentient being. And it's an, that's an interesting puzzle. You say, you, see, you say there's no connection, but actually there is. Yeah, no. Because you are suddenly, and I'm just thinking this through now, you are finding a way to connect and to explain to this animal what you would like it to do in a way that makes it comfortable with the end result. Yeah, I mean, it does all, all, all fits together almost too perfectly. It does, doesn't it? <laughs> yes. Perhaps I've overdone that a little bit. No, but I mean, you know, it, it's, it made, that made sense to me. And so, like, I, I mean, do you, own, you don't own a horse, do you, at the moment? Not these days. But you have I owned I did horses. in the past. A very naughty little brown and white pony. Uh, uh, the technical term would be skewballed. And he was the sort of pony that when I bought him, everyone said, perhaps you could just send him back. And that wasn't going to happen. <laughs> I like a challenge. And in the end, we were really good friends. And I think if you talk to people who are successful with horses, the ones they're successful with are always the ones that are challenging. Because in the end, you work through that and you establish a partnership. And that partnership is extraordinarily strong quite difficult to explain to other people yeah. and certainly if you go into my past and if you said tell me the names of some of your classmates at secondary school I'm struggling <laughs> but if you said go back and tell me the names of the ponies that you rode at that time I could bore for England <laughs> fair enough <laughs> so one of the things I know I guess about you to in terms of seeing you tell stories mm. is you have a, a sense of, of, of knowing sort of who you are where you are now right within your life but you, but it feels like through your life you've sort of had a, a kind of more epiphany like moments and that, that there's been times when you've sort of like you haven't felt like 
like you do now, I guess. You're absolutely right. And when I was in my 20s, I was very much... I didn't know really who I was. I knew who I didn't want to be, but I wasn't quite sure who I wanted to be. Then I met a very wonderful man with whom I spent 25 years until his death. And we really... We spent all our time together. We were both working. We were both busy. He coached a lot of basketball. He was away on tours. So we spent. So when we had time together, we spent that time together. And when he died, I had to make a decision whether I was going to effectively die as well, or whether I was going to discover the person I failed to discover in my twenties. And I have discovered her. Right. I have discovered her, and it's been. And I am a different person. I'm the person I wanted to be. And I've always been comfortable with myself, but I am really comfortable now. I am really who I want to be. Yeah. I mean, that's the sense I always get. That's what I mean. And I like that. I love hearing your stories for that reason, because I guess I'm still trying to fully work out who I am. And it's great to see that somebody, you can get there. You can get to the finishing line. You can sort of like have that. Yeah. You can get there. Yes. Yeah. And I think that you, you go on search. I've always been, as I say, I've always been very happy with where I've been and people would say oh if you had your life again what would you do differently and nothing particularly because the things I might do differently would I would work harder well no I wouldn't because I know myself I would be more ambitious no I wouldn't because I know myself and I think you come to terms with yourself but now I'm I'm able to say I am who I am and I'm having a good time. I will go on having a good time. I will go out and meet people. I'm doing different things. I go to things like Spark London. I'm part of a group called Skeptics in the Pub. We've set up uh, one of their chapters, I suppose, down in Gravesend. Uh, so I go to the theatre. I'm still working. I'm just starting a new venture because I'm actually going back to doing a bit more maths tutoring. So I've just bought myself a small office. (laughs) Impulse buy there. So I'm just exploring and doing things all the time because I don't have a lot of life left and I'm not going to waste it. Right, and and you're very very independently minded about that sort of stuff. Like you're you're doing that sort of stuff... You went, you went to Spark, you invited a friend, they didn't come, so you went anyway on your own. Well, the friend issue. invited me oh, and they oh, right. didn't. It okay. was that way round. Well, way. well, no, the, the, the friend told me about it. Right. And then, on the occasion, wasn't able to join me. And I find it very strange that I find young people, they're really poor at going out and meeting people. Yeah. When I was in my 20s, I went out all the time and I met people through all kinds of different channels. I, I suppose I was lucky. I've, I've always had a car. So I've always been very independent. I have my own flat. But I find it really strange that people will sit in their room by themselves and bemoan the fact that they don't have a partner. And, I'm, and my reaction is, well, you are going... I mean, you could find one on the internet, but they're not even doing that. <laughs> and I said, you have to go out and kiss a lot of frogs before you find your prince. But you have to go and get the frogs. Right. It's no good waiting for them to hop through the door. But you're not looking for frogs or princes, really. No. I mean, you're, like, no. you're living your life completely... Kind of that's the, That stuff could happen. Like, I don't know if it could happen or not, but yeah. it doesn't really matter. It's not your aim. 
No, object. you're absolutely right. And, and I think that sometimes people get too tied down in aims and objectives. And right. I talk to somebody who will say, oh, you know, I, I want to get married and I want to have children. Fine, OK. Um, how are you setting about finding, you know, somebody to do this? Because, right. you know, you need somebody with you. And they really haven't thought that through. I am just letting life take care of itself. Right. I'm working, I'm socialising, and I'm doing everything to please myself. And exactly as you say, if something, if something different turns up, or something different turns up. Right. I have no idea what's around the corner, right. but I'll keep going round corners and checking. Yeah, right, that's good. I mean, yeah, that, re- that resonates with me, that sentence. How did scepticism come about for you and well, that stuff? That's a lovely story. I was doing some IT training and I was training two men and we stopped for a coffee break and one of them said to me, have you heard of sceptics in the pub? And I said, no, because that's what everyone says. And he told me about sceptics in the pub, which is an organisation that sets up meetings in pubs all around the country where somebody can be bothered to set one up and they bring people to come along and talk because what they're interested in is exploring ideas that are backed up with scientific evidence. So, for example, we had this week somebody who came to talk to us from the Good Thinking Society and that's been set up, the background to that is that Simon Singh was involved with that. And it's about challenging ideas that are in the public arena that actually aren't backed up with scientific evidence. So it's a great organisation to be part of because people will come and talk. They come and talk not for a fee, but just for their expenses. And it's great because people start to come and listen whoever's talking. So it gives people insight into new ideas. So you might have somebody who is to do with the Good Thinking Society, you might have somebody working with the Large Hadron Collider, you might have somebody who's involved in psychology and misdirection, and it's great fun. And we've got a group in Gravesend, and there's one in Greenwich, there's one in London, there's right. one in Portsmouth, <clears throat> yeah, I think, all over the place. Yeah, they, they, they pop up everywhere, and I think like, there's, there's definitely uh, sceptics in the pub type thing going on in the fringe as well mm. like uh, we had I think they, they were up yes. against us in the same venue last year yes Edinburgh yeah. because when when I when I'd spoken to you know this chap about the skeptics and I went up to Hackney on my own <laughs> and people were saying you went to Hackney on your own yes you didn't get stabbed no, no. it's not compulsory in Hackney you can um, I spend most, a lot of time in Hackney yeah. and I, I know many people in Hackney. Yeah. And, I, and, and that's one of the things, this is why I find it strange because I've always done things. If I want to do something, I do it. And it, the people at Hackney were very nice. They don't run a Hackney Skeptics anymore, but it did sow the seed for the Gravesend one. Yeah. And so it went from there. And did you set that up or, or, did, you, or did somebody else set it up and you're helping them? No, well, the... the venue that we meet is actually a tea room and the, the person running the tea room wanted things to do in the evening and I mentioned this and he thought it might be a nice idea and I then spoke to somebody connected with Greenwich Skeptics and he just said go for it 
Right. And just like when in any time in a meeting, if you have an idea, yeah, you end up being just, the one who has to do absolutely. it. Absolutely. And he and he said he'd come and do the first talk, which he did. And then after that, you find there's a huge there's a huge resource out there of people who just want to share what they're doing and they will come they will travel miles we've had david nutt who was um the government drugs advisor yeah, and yeah. he he got bounced from his committee because of his equating the dangers of horse riding with the dangers of taking ecstasy that's correct he now gets into a lot of trouble because he talks about the dangers of alcohol as opposed to ecstasy and he came down to Gravesend and he spoke to us so there are, everybody is so generous with their time to share their passion it's a tremendous thing to be involved with yeah I mean it sounds I've, I've, I've heard a lot of like yeah I know I mean I've, I know vaguely of this because skeptics are like a, a big movement and it's very kind of like it's quite a complicated thing now and there's different factions I guess any any big movement factions appear and different opinions happen but one of the things about skepticism generally is it's about sharing ideas and listening to other ideas I guess it's when people stop listening is when those factions and anger happens but it's great the uh, the skeptics in the pub events always sound really good and I know a lot of people who've gone to them and got a lot out of it yeah. they are and all they're asking you to do is have an open mind that's all it's about. Yeah, sure. It's about saying, just be open. And if somebody presents you with a fact, just do a little bit of back-checking and right. just see where that fact came from. Is it just their opinion? Right. I mean, we've covered a lot of ground, more succinctly than I expected in some ways. Yeah, I'm just trying to think what ground to go to next. So, well, well I was go going... You well, can, you one, can, you one, can choose one, the ground. <laughs> That's fine. Yeah, well, I was... I was actually just thinking about the storytelling and you were talking about children because we've, with the sceptics in the pub, although we're in a tea room, so the age isn't an issue, but we've started doing an event for young people so that we're now getting, if you like, the next generation. Now, we're not talking in the same vein as scepticism, but what we're bringing along are people who are in a, in a workplace doing a job they're engineers, they're chemists, they're biologists. We've got an astrophysicist lined up. And they come along and they talk about what they do and they relate it back to this is what you're doing in the classroom and this is where it can lead to. And it's the absolute joy was a couple of weeks ago when a mother came to me and said her little girl who's in year six and she's at school, she knows about teachers her parents are teachers we've talked about the pervasive nature of teachers <laughs> but now this little girl having been to one of our events with an engineer is saying I might like to be an English teacher but I might quite like to be an engineer and to go and help people and the engineer who came to talk was talking about going into situations where people have a problem they've got no water or there's been flood or hurricane and he did a wonderful video showing the point when the water burst out of the ground from the well and suddenly she's thinking I could go and help people I could be an engineer what is more joyous than to hear a six-year-old girl from a family of teachers 
knowing that there's something other than teaching <laughs> in the big outside world. Yeah. Which is fantastic. Yeah, yeah. and and that that actually makes me make me think of another sort of thing I think is kind of that stands out to me when I hear you tell stories often. I guess like being a maths teacher, doing IT, stuff like that, these things aren't the kind of things that people tell girls to do when they're growing up. Particularly not when you were growing up, I guess. But, but, but I mean, there'll have been times in history it'll have been even less likely for girls to be encouraged to do problem-solving, mathematics and that sort of thing. Have you felt that to be an issue in your, in your life or have you just sort of like just got on with it and not really cared? I mean, how's, how has that been doing something that's not considered ladylike, if you like? It's, actually, there are two threads there. So if I've been a bit succinct up till now, hey, we're on a roll right, now. Let's go with the thread. So uh, th- there, are, there are the two threads there. One is I went to an all-girls school and there the answer is you just get on and you get your O levels and you get your A levels. And I, it never crossed my mind that maths was something that girls didn't do. I thought maths was just another subject. It was like English or Latin or history or geography. It simply wasn't segregated. But the absolute joy of doing maths at that point is, as you say, most of the other people doing maths were men. And it was just wonderful. Because I was... And maths and IT, in my 20s, I was surrounded by men. (laughs) Just marvellous. That's absolutely terrific. And the other thing is that when I was in my teens, I knew a lot of women who... And we're talking now in the 1960s. And a good friend's mother was in property. She was... I don't know whether she was widowed, divorced. I have no idea of her background but she was involved in property management and she was a very successful woman in her own right I knew another woman who ran a riding school in her own right another friend's mother was a consultant gynaecologist and my own mother when my father died took over a building company so she took on a firm that was full of men who were builders and plumbers and carpenters and a shop front that was to do with ironmongery and things like that. So I grew up just thinking women just did everything. I had no idea that that wasn't what happened. Right. And it was a huge shock when I got into my 20s and realised that actually women in a lot of places were still considered nothing without a man. Right. That was a huge shock because that wasn't what I was used to at all. Right. I just thought women did things. Right. I mean, you you know, you are right, though, as well, yeah. to think that. That is true. Yeah. That is what women do and have always done. They've just got on with life. Yes. But that said, yeah, there are these, these strange attitudes around those things. And so, I mean, I guess the, it's interesting that you say, like, it was great being around men when you were young, like, yeah. during those years. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I get it. I get why it's great. But, I mean, it, like, now, there's a lot of com- conversation around, like, people who are in the sciences or maths or IT in, like, communities in America or whatever, that, that there's not very many women in those communities. And when there are, they don't feel very safe within those groups of men. But you're saying that, in your experience, you did feel safe and it was great. You know? Yeah, I really, I really don't understand that. I, I just never... And we are talking about, back in... 
you know, the end of the 60s and into the 70s when you would perhaps have anticipated that women would have been subjected right, I would to expect more, more harassment. harassment. Yeah, and I have yeah. to say, I didn't suffer any. But I just found the men that I worked with were just great. They were... I went out... We went to the pub together. We went off... Some of us went on holiday together. We went on a narrow boat. I mean, that was just... And... I suppose the only little bit of sexism I came across there, which I didn't notice really, was that I wasn't allowed very much time steering the narrow boat. Now, narrow boats are 70 foot long and 7 foot wide, and there were three men and two women on the boat. And I suppose with hindsight, we didn't get a lot of chance actually steering it. Until the last day when, because we'd got a bit behind, we had to leave at five o'clock in the morning to get back, to get the boat back to the boatyard. And the three men, I have to say, were a little reluctant about being up at five o'clock in the morning. So I volunteered, because that's what you do. And so at five o'clock in the morning, but I didn't know how to start the boat because nobody had actually shown me that. So somebody volunteered to get up, started the boat. I'm on the canal the cut as we professionals say and I'm steering the boat and the person who's switched on the engine is walking along the side and he fell overboard and this was slightly worrying because he is then shouting at me stop the boat I have no idea how to stop the boat <laughs> because nobody had shown me because I hadn't spent long enough steering the thing to actually find out so I'm chugging down the canal and he is disappearing in the other direction and it's all I'm, I'm never very worried about things not th- with hindsight I should have been more concerned he was, he was wearing a lot of clothes because it was cold and he could have been being dragged to the bottom but I just thought I had no idea how to stop this boat so I ran to the bank this of course woke everyone else up who came up and uniformly berated me for waking them up but it stopped the boat. And I had no... And then they said, well, didn't you know you had to put it in reverse? No. And even if I had, I had no idea how to put it in reverse. Well, you, you solved so, the problem. But I solved the problem. <laughs> and, and I solved it big time because I stopped the boat and I woke everybody else up and we rescued the not drowning man. And then everyone went back to bed apart from me and I carried on down. I still didn't know how to stop it because still nobody had shown me how to put it in reverse. I just hoped it wouldn't happen again. But so I suppose there was that. But no, it was good fun. And we just all had a, a fun time together. And the person who did the cooking was one of the blokes. And he cooked amazing food. But he wouldn't start cooking until the pubs had shut. In those days, the pubs actually shut. I can't remember what time. But he wouldn't start cooking until we were back from the pub. So he did eat about two o'clock in the morning generally (laughs) that's that's the kind of thing you can only really do in your 20s I I did get caught up in things and in fact one of the other one of the chaps on the boat he and a partner eventually they bought a narrow boat they brought it down to London I think they moored it somewhere and it, it got towed away so in London not only do cars get towed away but boats do as well and it got towed away to Browning Island I think it's called in the middle of the Thames and they went to go and empty the bilges or whatever one does, and it was moored on the island. I have no idea to this day how they actually got out to it, but they took it really very seriously. But then I lost interest. 
I do lose interest. <laughs> yeah. If if it doesn't capture me and go on capturing me, right. yeah, I lose interest. I mean, are I you, move on. Are, yeah. I mean, are you a serial hobbyist? Then do you have like have you had a series of hobbies throughout your life that you've got into? And it doesn't sound like you've moved off horses as well. So you're not not everything. No, like horse, horses have been a fairly consistent thread. I'll give things a go. I, I t- I've had a very lovely camera for about. 20 years now it's more than 20 years it's nearer 30 years now in fact I now have the second camera in the series the first camera I went up to Bradford to the photography museum and somebody was showing us around and he pointed out this camera in the display as a very early SLR camera and I said oh look I've got one round my neck and I felt terribly important because what I was wearing was a historic relic. But I'm just not very good at things. And I went on a photography course and I just, I just wasn't very good. And so I went, on a, I went on the same course again because I thought if I did it a second time. And the second time I went on it, I thought I'd done rather better. And what they do on this course is they talk to you, they do a lot of theory, then they take you out and you take some photographs. And you all come back to a central point and your photographs are all loaded on the computer. And then they go through them and critique them. And when I did the first course, there was a lady there and she turned up with this fabulous camera outfit. And she said, I've been given it as a present. I have no idea how any of it works. She'd never taken a photograph before. We did all the theory stuff. We went out, we went and we took photographs, we came back. And her pictures were the first up on the computer. And they were amazing. They were absolutely breathtakingly awesome. Mine were the last up. And mine were the ones about people... There's this thing that says, be positive before you criticise. And you could see people struggling for the <laughs> positive bit. And the person doing the course said, he said, well, he said... I think he said that, and I can't remember the name of the person who did these fabulous pictures, he said, it will be much easier to teach her the technical skills to enhance her already creative talents than it will be to teach Sally to be creative. I've got all the technical stuff, you see. I could do all my shutters, and, uh, but it was the... So I went back, same company, same course. They were very, very good. And this time... We took pictures in London, that was better because the previous one was, oh, a garden, and I'm not very, gardens, flowers, not really. And, oh, do you know, not really. So, <laughs> I, and this, we went into the British Museum and I took photographs and I thought, I think these are okay, really. Anyway, we all go back and, and I think when they put, put the pictures on the computer, they do a very quick critique because mine came up last again and I really thought they were better but clearly they really weren't and I thought oh, do you know I'm just not very good at this I wouldn't say I give up easily because I've had a camera for 30 years and I still keep taking pictures but I realise that it's never going to be more than just taking snaps but then photography like when you were saying earlier on that the thing about maps is that there's right and wrong answers mm. there aren't right and wrong answers to photography like that is a matter of opinion and subjective taste and all of those kind of things. But the subjectivity always goes against whatever I do. So I just I will give things a good go, but on the whole, if it doesn't involve numbers, it's not my strength. It's not, I, I don't know if you've ever watched Matt Parker 
do the full frontal nerdity yes. and the festival of the spoken, spoken nerd, nerd. Yeah. and that's just amazing and I just love watching him doing that his programs and as he said he said yeah there are people out there and they go home in the evening and they don't want to spend their evening with a spreadsheet can you believe that no I can't either Matt I really think <laughs> what better way to spend an evening than with a spreadsheet and if I'm so yes I like things Maybe it's to do with control. With photography, maybe I cannot quite control what's going on. Whereas with a spreadsheet, it's all down to me. I've just worked this one out. Yeah, it was a, yeah. It sounded like you can you can hear thing. the cogs, can't you, just <laughs> sort of going through. Um, but you know, I'll do new things, and I've recently become a school governor, and that's not something I've ever done before. Right. Uh, so that's a whole new. And venture. that's a different position within the school oh, system. Is it just? And nowadays, the governors are held so responsible for what happens with the school, and they're volunteers. They're not mm. people who have applied for a job because they have skills and talents that are apposite to the position. They are people who have... In my case, somebody did say to me, I've volunteered you, but, uh, yeah, but you still don't get paid. But it's very interesting. It is interesting because you are in this very strange position that you are responsible for what goes on but that responsibility is through monitoring the professionals to make sure they are doing a professional job so you're not you're not coming in and telling the professionals what to do because they know that's their job what you are doing is making sure that they are doing that job so that's that's interesting and uh, so that's a new departure but at the moment what people have noticed is I'm pretty much up for anything at the moment except I have now run out of time I have been out every evening this week I am out tomorrow evening and my neighbours say to me we never see you and I say (laughs) this is because I'm never there Uh, but you know I can have a week so this week Monday it was Spark Uh, Tuesday it was our youngsters they were making radio receivers Wednesday it was Skeptics uh, Thursday, it was the Almeida Theatre for Oristaya. Uh, this evening, I'm talking to you. <laughs> Tomorrow night, it's Bo Stratagem at the National Theatre. Wow. So, you know, that's quite a busy week, and I'm working in the daytime. Absolutely. And I guess, like, and that's another, so another strand, I guess, of your, of your like, how long have you been going to theatre? Like, when did that sort of start? Well, the theatre, I went to in my 20s, right. and then it stopped. So for 25 years, we went very occasionally to local theatre. But now I'm back on my... And I do have a young friend who goes to the theatre by himself and is prepared to go with me, just for company. So if he's going on his own, we, we sometimes go off together. And I'm probably, I'm probably even a bit old to be his grandmother, but that's, yeah, that's very nice. Uh, but I'm really I'm quite happy to go on my own. I don't mind... If I decide to do something, it's not going to stop me that I'm doing it on my own. Well, so, you might yeah. talk to people there anyway. That's oh, something that you yeah. do, right? I mean, that's because I mean, and that's one of the things that's great about Spark, like seeing people, yeah. like you say, it's, it's one of those moments when people from different walks of life are just talking to each other and sort of walls fall down a little bit at Spark. And, it's and good I, to see. well, and I did last night. I was talking. There was uh, because the seats at the Almeida are all in pairs. 
So you are sitting on a bench that's made for two. So you're, I'm sitting at one end of it, and I'm thinking, well, I'm glad I'm quite slim because I'm not taking up more than my fair share. And uh, a very nice young woman came and sat down next to me. And when we got to the first interval, we started talking about it. We were coming at it, our opinions were from slightly different viewpoints, which was great because then we could discuss and think about it. And then she went on to tell me about a friend of hers who's doing a PhD in what happens to people's digital presence when they've died. Right, that's a really Which is question. really interesting, mm-hmm. which is a really interesting question. And if, if I'd been, except I did feel it wasn't entirely appropriate, and the friend was in Nottingham, but I would love to get involved in something like that. Because having, I suppose, Chris didn't have a digital presence because his knowledge very much of what happened with digital presence was in terms of children being bullied at school and that kind of thing. So he was actually very opposed to things like Facebook, uh, particularly the, the social media that children weren't sufficiently informed about and were making mistakes and getting into trouble through it and leaving a footprint behind that would come back perhaps to haunt them. We had down in Kent the new police commissioner. She appointed somebody to be a young person's liaison and then somebody trawled the internet and found that she'd made the sort of foolish, silly remark that you make when you're in your teens and you don't mean anything. Yeah, it's going to be something that it's not meant seriously. But all of a sudden... there's and, And I think that's really hard for young people because that as time has gone on they're a little bit more aware of it but certainly the first ones through i yeah, don't think sure, were aware the first ones through yeah they didn't no know yeah. how pervasive it was going well to not be. just young people i mean oh, all, anybody. everybody every age i mean everybody. i think everybody in that first phase i mean there, there was those kind of heady days of like all of the possibilities yeah. and then then we, everyone suddenly realized what the dangers were and all yeah. of these things that we we, we, you know, we've opened Pandora's box. It's just totally. working out how totally. to how to handle that. Yeah. yeah, and my my belief is that everything you do up to the age of twenty five should be expunged. I just don't think that should. I just don't think that should be on a record anyway. And yet now <laughs> everything is on record. It's digitally on record. So it's really easy to get hold of. It's not like going back to the old school and breaking into the office and going through the filing cabinet. It's not like that. You just have to hack into an IT system. But then, I mean, I guess the counter-argument or possibility, I don't know if it's an argument, uh, to that is, like, I can understand why you might want everyone to have the first 25 years expunged. That's yeah. it. I can understand that. But then, like, if everybody knew what everyone was like for those first 25 years, then hopefully at that point we'd stop, you know, judging each other. Because, you know, that's, that's the, the thing about openness is that if you have closed stuff, things can be manipulated more or whatever. Do you know what I mean? I think before you're 25, you are still doing a lot of sorting out. Right, and you I still make that. a lot of mistakes. Hey, I agree yeah, and, I, and I, think, <laughs> I think that even though we all know, even if there isn't the digital, we all know that we do silly things when we're younger. But I don't think we need to have them thrown back at us in quite such, in that way. And oh, I don't think yeah, we need absolutely. to have it all around. Well, I think what, what, I'm, what I'm talking about really is that, that hopefully people will stop throwing them back at people 
if, if everybody is living their lives more and more out online. After Chris died, somebody, somebody was at college with him and said, oh, I'll send you some memories of, of Chris at college. I said, that's really kind of you. Thank you very much. And the, the person in question who did that had known Chris very well. And actually, he now has died. And, but he sent me this document and I read it through. And the person he was talking about was not the Chris that I knew. And I read it and I thought, this isn't the man I live with. The man I, 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 we met in our early 30s. So a lot of water had gone under the bridge by then. And we didn't talk about our pasts at all because it wasn't actually that interesting, to be honest. And I read about Chris when he was at college and I thought, I don't recognise this person. And I read it and I deleted the file. Fair enough. I actually got rid of it because I said, that's not the person I lived with. The person I lived with was somebody who'd gone through a lot of changes, a lot of metamorphoses while you're finding who you right, are. Right, right, right. Well, I'm, not, I'm definitely not you're the not person there. I was yeah, when I was yeah, 20. Yeah, we all change. And I, and I changed subtly when I met Chris because I made a commitment, not, not a conscious commitment, but I just... You, you start, somebody becomes important in your life, and so they become important in your life. So there's no, yeah. that, that's just what happens. And now I'm somebody else again. Right. If, if somebody who knew me in my 20s wrote about me, I think people who've just recently met me would not recognise yeah, the person. Yeah, sure, absolutely. Which is an interesting thought, which I've just had really. But I, yeah. So I think we do change, and I think we're entitled to leave our other persona behind and I think that's what we should be allowed to do. I definitely agree with that. Um, mm. Being allowed to leave them behind, I definitely agree with. How we come to the point of allowing each other to forget our previous selves, I don't know. We all, we've all had these pasts and whatever, mm. we don't have to bring it up and throw it at each other, but we kind of, I don't know, I like to look back at the different people I've been, do you know what I mean? I don't want to, oh, yeah. and I don't want to deny that they're connected to me or or say, you know, or write them off, you know. And when I think about myself as a teenager, I, I more want to hug myself than, than, yeah. than forget myself, you know. Yeah. yeah, no, I think we are all, and we are all very different people and we change. And I don't, I'm not, I don't have a problem with any of the people that I've been. But it's just that I think as you move on and you meet different people, a little bit like Chris met me, and I wouldn't have been part of the social set that he was in right. when he was in his early 20s. We wouldn't have, we wouldn't have had any overlap. Yeah. So I don't really want to... I'm not interested in that facet you of his life. You don't want to be life. reminded of I don't want to, right. But And the other thing that I find... I'm, as you've already said, I, I'm on the internet. I'm, I'm certainly not Sally. And uh, although I do have a, a Sally sceptic persona. But I don't have a digital presence as me right. I don't have a digital presence as me I only have it in the context of I'm running a skeptics in the pub group and uh, so I, I, I'm, I keep right out of that and I have to remind myself when I'm doing something like Twitter that I am doing it as skeptics in the pub not as me but I was on the internet I have no idea what I was particularly doing. I might have been looking up something to do with art, because I quite like going to art galleries. I quite like meeting artists. I think they're interesting people. And I suddenly found a picture of somebody in an art gallery, and I'm there in the picture. Wow. And I think, 
And there's this sudden moment where you think, this is me, and I'm there. And I didn't know I was there. Yeah. And that's quite startling to suddenly find that you've turned up at this... Now, there was no... It was fine. I was at the exhibition. There was yeah. no reason why I shouldn't have been there. But it's quite unnerving. Oh yeah, um, and we are, you know, we're photographed, we're videoed yeah. so much. I mean, I've gone the other way. You know, I I, I understand the the, yeah. the, the worries <laughs> about digital footprints and and being traced and stuff. Mm. But I've just gone. Well, you can't you can't fight it. So I'm going to go the other it. way. And I mean, I'm to the to the point that you know my life. You know, my entire life is out there for people to find completely, pretty mm. much online. Well, I've just watched the film Amy, about Amy Winehouse. Right. Fantastic film. Quite extraordinary. But, of course, because of her age and her generation, everything is there in video clips with sound. Right. I mean, I've got... Because from being a very small child, my father took cine film it was cine film had to go away to america to be processed it didn't have sound with it it was just you held up little placards saying i'm going on holiday now but it's very interesting seeing somebody's life entirely through video clips from that life right with no real interpretation beyond you don't know where those clips came from and the context they were in which is a little bit you do stop and think about that but it's an extraordinary film. And, goodness, I, and at the end, somehow you couldn't see any way out for that troubled young woman with that amazing, amazing voice. Such a feisty, funny, talented young woman. And it just all fell apart for her. And the media intrusion yeah. horrified me. Yeah. Horrified me. It was just... I don't watch television. I, I occasionally... I've been coerced a little bit to watch bits now, and I did buy a television licence because I did start watching. And, but if you don't watch television, it's quite hard to get back into the habit, mm-hmm. and I didn't have a television for most of my adult life. So I'm not used to something that I have to sit in front of. I'm used to the radio and I can wander around. It doesn't matter, the sound follows me. It's quite challenging to sit in front of a television and concentrate. Uh, so I'm, I'm not really good at, uh, at watching things like that. So I haven't been that aware of... I know they talk about the media being intrusive and we go back to Princess Diana and the issues with the media there. But watching it in this film, I just thought... That is appalling. And of course everybody except me knew that already. But it was dreadful. And I and you see we have all this celebrity now. When I was in my teens, there was a pop group called Manfred Mann. Yeah. Right. They lived in the same area that I lived in. Actually, so did Val Dunican, who's died recently. He was another familiar media figure, if you like. But in those days, he was in the phone book as Dunican Val. I mean, there wasn't this culture of celebrity. So they just had, they just lived normal lives, if you like. And the fact that I lived around the corner from Manfred Mann, so what? It wasn't of any interest, really. And I met up with an old school friend after 40 years, about a month ago. And she said, oh, one of the group lived in Blackheath. And she lived in Blackheath. And she went round and knocked on his door one Saturday morning and just said, can I have your autograph? So it was all very low-key. And in fact, 
Sandy Shaw lived in Blackheath as well. She of the no shoes and, you know, and, and pop songs in the 1960s. And it just wasn't that important. They were people who were on television, they were on top of the pops, they had best-selling hit singles. But it didn't mean you went and camped out on their doorstep or the press didn't follow them around. I mean, it was there so was, different. There was the Beatles, though, I guess. And I think, yeah, they... I mean, that's when it started, maybe. Yes, and I, th- I think they drew the attention. But for everybody else, it was just life as normal, and you went up to London, you went to a recording studio, you went to Top of the Pops. But on the whole, we just weren't that interested. Yeah, it just wasn't that important. And that seemed to me just a wee bit healthier than where we are today with this celebrity, this cult of celebrity, which yeah. just seems... because. I've heard people say that young people say, what do you want to be when you grow up? I'd like to be a celebrity. Right. Sorry? I, I, wouldn't you like to find a cure for cancer? Right. Um, no. no, I think I'd just like to be a celebrity. Fine. Well, it's not fine, is it, really? I, I mean, <laughs> celebrity's where the money is, and that's the thing that you see. I mean, I'm not, I'm not saying that they're necessary things to aspire to, but you can understand why people want money. You know, not necessarily as much money as a celebrity, but certainly it's, it's easy to understand why the things everyone's sold, like, so strongly are the things that kids end up wanting to be. And I don't understand that at all. I was talking to two people at a conference for investigative journalists a couple of weeks. This is another facet. If there's a conference, looks interesting, I'm there. And it was just amazing. And... Uh, Andrew Jennings, who did the big revelations about FIFA, he was there talking. He was just extraordinary. He goes right back to the 1970s where he was exploring police corruption and he'd found a serving police officer who at the time was on sick leave, too ill to go in front of a police disciplinary board, but well enough to be in training for the London Marathon. So that must have been the early 80s because I think the first London Marathon was about 82. And so what he did to try and interview this police officer is he found out where he was training. And there's a wonderful clip because he and his cameraman hid behind a hedge and then jumped out and actually ran with this chap, thrusting a microphone in his face and saying, now, superintendent, whatever name it was, Please, can you tell me why you're too ill to be in front of a disciplinary panel, but can be out training for the London Marathon? And so, uh, you know, I'd been talking to people about corruption and uh, was then talking to someone who just lost his job at... Actually, at this point, I have to back off saying names. But he'd been a whistleblower, effectively. Fortunately, coming up to retirement age, so they said suddenly your job isn't there anymore your pension is fine we don't have a problem with you but it was to do with financial shenanigans and I I, and I was just talking to a couple of chaps there and I was trying to understand why people want more money than you could ever possibly spend and I just thought it's like my antlers are bigger than your antlers to make it perhaps a slightly less crude version of the standard because I can't think of any other reason why would you go on being dishonest deceitful unprincipled just to put more money in the bank I guess it's a rush though I guess people get addicted to the kind of like 
Yeah, the yeah. adrenaline, and yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, and I guess it's kind of, it must feel adventurous to them, like when they're doing it, like their risk. It's like taking risks. It's gambling, isn't it? It's all, and it's you see risk taking. I mean, this is horses again, and I've ridden horses in situations, not now, but when I was younger, where I would be riding a horse at speed over fences. This right. is clearly a really stupid thing to do. This is really not a sensible thing to do. But the adrenaline kicks in and the buzz, and we're back round to David Nutt and the addiction, but the buzz of it is something that is quite extraordinary. Yeah, and I'm okay. sure that's why for a lot of girls particularly, it is their way of getting that adrenaline rush, which is... And it, it, is, it is quite a high... And I've... I've never, ever taken any kind of drugs. I'm a bit iffy about paracetamol if I've got a (laughs) headache, so you can tell where I'm coming from there. But if drugs do what adrenaline does, it's just as well, because I've got a very addictive personality, and you know what, I'd be... I'd be mainlining whatever I could mainline, you know. I'm not. Thank goodness I never took up smoking yeah. because I would never have stopped. Well, I would you, never have yeah. stopped. It's pretty hard to stop. Yeah, uh, I can assure yeah. you. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So, I mean, the last thing I asked my guests uh, is, do you have anything to plug? Which is a strange, strange question, but you know, there it is. Well, Spark London. <laughs> well, hey, good. You know, where can I go from there? Because that has taken me outside my comfort zone and actually so has skeptics in the pub because what that's done as well is I've ended up contacting people complete strangers asking them very impudently if they would come and talk to us for no money (laughs) and and at the moment what I seem to be doing is looking for things outside my comfort zone and saying I am going to jump in Spark London's done that skeptics in the pub has done that Uh, being a school governor is to a certain extent doing that because I don't know if it's poacher turned gamekeeper. I think right. it may be. It feels a bit like that. Yeah, but I think what I'm doing at the moment is I'm trying to get my buzz, my adrenaline kick, from saying that is something I wouldn't do in a thousand years, but I'm going to do it. And talking to you here <laughs> in an open space with a furry topped microphone it is, it's a strange has been situation. an extraordinary thing to do. And you said at the beginning, oh, people do this all the time these days. I've never, I've never been interviewed by anybody like this. <laughs> and so I'm out of my comfort zone yeah. completely. I have no idea what it will sound like, what it's going to be like. Yeah, I mean, I don't 100% there we go. Know, 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 know what it's going to sound like. Or, no. I mean, I have the, the, the headphones monitor. I mean, that's the thing. These new headphones are quite brightly coloured as well. They are. The, They're I, very... I mean, I, I want it to sort of like not... I want people not to think about the microphone, but it's got a furry thing on the top of it, and I've got these bright uh, red headphones. So that's hard to hard to make people forget. I but went hopefully... to Scotland once, and they were selling furry <laughs> things that was that that were being sold as furry haggises to right, take right. away as a moment, and that's all it reminds me of. I'm afraid. Yeah, it looks a bit like that. The red people headphones, call it a he- hedgehog as a well. Hedgehog. Well, the red headphones are as distracting as the naked man. I imagine. So they are, yeah. you know, I'm sort of triangulating really between the three elements. You've done very <laughs> well uh, with, with with so many distractions. Yeah. Uh, the last thing I ask my guests to do is to say goodbye to the audience. Goodbye. Thank you very much for listening. It's been lovely talking to you and I hope you've had fun. Bye. Bye, everyone. 
So you can find out more about Spark at www.stories.co.uk. And Spark is kind of becoming even more than just London-based. We're expanding around the UK. So look out for Spark in your area. And if you haven't got one in your area, go over to that website and, uh, and find out how you can set one up. The next Spark Hackney that I host will be on the 14th of December. And the theme for that night is Gifts. And if you like storytelling and you hear this on the day that it comes out or even the day after that, on the 19th of November at the Dogstar in Brixton, I'll be doing my storytelling show, What About the Men Mansplaining Masculinity? It's, well, it's kind of storytelling. That's a part of it. It's also kind of TED Talky and kind of all of my experiences and research and stuff around areas of gender, masculinity, patriarchy, that sort of thing, all combined into one show that involves me wearing a purple dress, a purple fedora, and talking about my most complicated childhood experiences. After that, it's a double bill. There'll be a really great show by AJ McKenna, who's a previous guest on Getting Better Acquainted, where she'll do her show, Howl of the Banty, which is a spoken word show in verse about banter culture. And again, kind of ties in very nicely to mine. It happens to be on International Men's Day. That was an accident. I'm not necessarily a fan of that day. There's some complicated things I feel about that. If you want to know more about that, go over to www.mansplainingmasculinity.co.uk where you can find out more about the show, about the research for the show, and also read on the blog my thoughts on International Men's Day. Doors open at 7.30. My show is at 8 o'clock. AJ's show is at 9.15. It's pay what you like or what you can afford or what you think it's worth when you come along. If you can't come to that show and give me some money that way, but you want to support what I'm doing, all of the free art and documentary that I put out into the world, if you want to support Getting Better Acquainted, you now can. You can go to www.gettingbetteracquainted.co.uk, which will take you to the SoundCloud page where you can donate directly to what I do. Click on the donate button that you'll see at that URL and donate whatever you can afford or whatever you think that I deserve. Either way, that would be great because it's hard being whatever I am, a freelance storyteller, creator of podcasts, whatever I am. It's very hard to get some money for that. So if you want to help me to carry on doing that, please support me with your money. can follow getting better acquainted on twitter at gba podcast you can like it on facebook www.gettingbetteracquainted.co.uk is one place you can find it and remember there are lots of ways to get better acquainted <laughs>